global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Rehan Esset is an international specialist at a Wall Street firm where she works primarily with the Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigations Practice Group. She also works with the firm's Arbitration Group. She works with clients in anti-corruption internal investigations, compliance audits, business partner reviews, and other due diligence efforts. She also assists in the representation of clients in investment state arbitration proceedings. Rehan has extensive experience in Central Asia, Canada, Turkey, and China. While at Harvard Law School, Rehan was a teaching fellow together with a leading Harvard Business School professor on a course focused on emerging markets. Rehan chairs the Women Entrepreneurs Initiative with Harvard alumni entrepreneurs in Washington, D.C. Previously, Rehan worked in the Istanbul office of an international law firm where she assisted with construction disputes, including construction arbitration matters. Before that, Rehan worked in a leading business law firm in Istanbul where she assisted with dispute resolutions as well as corporate and nuclear energy matters involving negotiations with the Republic of Turkey, Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. We are pleased to welcome Rehan today to discuss the human rights crisis facing the Uyghur people, as well as other topics. Rehan, welcome to Global Law and Business. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Rehan, we know the Uyghur human rights crisis is a deeply personal topic for you. Before we go any further, though, could you help us set the stage for our listeners who may only have a superficial understanding of what is happening, who exactly are the Uyghur people? Uh, and tell us about what is happening to them right now. Yeah, thank you. Um, the Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group that predominantly live in the northern west part of China, but they share cultural and linguistic heritage with other Turkic Central Asian nations. Uyghurs maintain very distinct identity, one that closer to the neighboring countries, all the eastern countries, if you will. Since the incorporation of the People's Republic of China, the Uyghur region started to be called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The term Xinjiang means new frontier. The name gives an illusion that the region enjoys great autonomy, when in fact that's not the case. After the Cultural Revolution, um, I think there was a brief period where Uyghurs enjoyed cultural autonomy um, and a, a lot of social aspects of their lives, whether it's a musical, theaters, flourished. The trade on the Silk Road revived during that period. Many Western movies were translated into Uyghurs. So you can say that Uyghurs enjoyed a bit of freedom 
But then early 2000, we start to see oppression in southern Xinjiang. Then there was a July 5th, 2009 uprising, which was the result of the regional government's forced migration policy, where they um, forced and imposed this policy to move Uyghurs in from the southern Xinjiang to work in Guangdong factories as a part of what they called a pairing up policy. Now, due to the government's oppression, there was always resistance in the southern Xinjiang that created conflict between government apparatus or police officers and civilians. Then after Xi Jinping came to power, he rolled out the strike hard campaign under the banner of fighting extremism, terrorism, and separatism. And in mid-2016, and this, this is the part that changed the course of history, similar to what happened in 2009 uprising, the Xi Jinping's administration appointed Chen Chuanguo, who was recently subject to the sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act. He came from years of governing Tibet and became the architects of the infamous internment camps where millions of Uyghurs, of Uyghurs locked up. The minute he steps a foot in the Uyghur region, he launched this very unprecedented repression that we have not seen since, unfortunately, Holocaust. Now I think we reached a point of arguing what's happening to the Uyghur people amount to genocide. I do want to have a bit of tweak on religious component in discussing Uyghur identity because I think oftentimes the media refers to Uyghurs as Uyghur Muslims. When we describe like Kazakh, Turkish, Uzbek, their identity never followed by their religious identity. And the reason there's so much emphasis on Uyghur's Muslim identity, I think it's twofold. First, freedom of religion or religious liberty is a constitutionally protected right provided in the religious clause of First Amendment and many Western countries have similar provisions. Since we, we value so much of these rights, then we desire to safeguard it. And in the past, oppressions against the Uyghurs stem from religious persecution, especially in the conservative part of Uyghurs, people did face this kind of repression as a result of their religious identity. Um, but I think it's beyond religious oppression because we also need to recognize the pluralism aspect of the Uyghur region because Uyghurs you know, practice all sorts of religion and then there are families like mine where parents or family members were forced to pledge their allegiance to the party rather than a particular religion. So I grew up, for instance, like without having exposure to religion other than celebrating holidays. Then after leaving China, I embarked on my own spiritual journey. So um, so that's why like, I, I just want to have a bit of like a different take on this identity, Uyghur identity as a whole. But I do want to thank you for opening this podcast with the questions pertaining to the grave human rights violations and human suffering. I think the business and human rights are not mutually exclusive concepts, and we need to make sure that this course on human rights is part of the discussion when we talk about business. No, thank you for opening up to us. We are absolutely looking forward to learning more. Uh, we know this is a sensitive topic for you and, and deeply personal as well. On your Twitter feed, you describe yourself first and foremost as a lawyer and proud sister of unjustly detained entrepreneur 
Ekpar Essa. Can you tell us about Ekpar and his situation? Yeah, um, you know, as you said, it's incredibly personal and painful. Um, my brother Ekbert is a very kind and compassionate Uyghur entrepreneur. And at a very young age, like when he was in college, like many other young visionaries, he foresaw a new opportunity in which dig- which is a digital media platform that we're using, all the social media platform. And this was like early 2007. He did not pursue like the typical nine to five government jobs want, but he wanted to build his own entrepreneurship. While internet is a space for freedom of information, but in China, everything is censored and that is a common knowledge, but he still tried to succeed to the extent the system allowed. And the platform that he created is a combination of social media platform like Facebook or the traditional media like the New York Times. And there are like so many different focuses or columns on the platform, like including there's a segment that dedicated to Chinese law and he complies with the censorship rules. And the, But despite that, he was wildly successful. And, you know, he also became a bridge between the Xinjiang government and the people. There were so many good aspects of this platform that is known Bagdash for the Uyghurs, because you know, on occasions the government responded to people's complaints or griefness. The ideals that he pursued are very much reflected in his philanthropic commitment in helping kids with disability. And you know, on multiple occasions, the government called him as a positive force and bridge builder between the Chinese government and local citizens. But all of that changed in March 2016 he was nominated for the State Department's most prestigious international business leadership program by then U.S. Ambassador to China, Max Barkis, in 2015. After going through rigorous rounds of review and background checks, my brother came to the U.S. to participate in this program in early 2016. You know, I mean, I also learned about some of the notable alumni community, including the current uh, Prime Minister of the New Zealand, Justin Darden, who's very much loved internationally, or the current UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. I was very much excited for him, but I didn't know that this would be a curse rather than a blessing and celebration of his achievement. So what happened was immediately after turning from the State Department's chip, and this is a period when they start to build these internment camps. He was thrown into one and later reportedly imprisoned on trumped-up charges, inciting ethnic hatred and facing a 15-year sentence. And obviously, you know, it's been like more than four years, and some some might feel like, you know, it's been a long time, but I think I, I do say that the feeling of loss are still raw and painful, um, I learned how to to cope with this, but his absence is ever more felt. And my brother's case, I mean, I think shines a light on, you know, regardless how much you conform to the government's definition of model citizen or how successful you are and contributed to the Chinese society, you're never free from these sort of like government's reach or arbitrary detention. And it doesn't matter whether you're successful 
you're a believer or not, obviously nobody should be subjected to enforced disappearance or arbitrary detention by a totalitarian country for their religious, ethnic, or viewpoint. Um, but uh, this this is what ha- this is what happened, and uh, that is the reality of millions of Uyghurs facing. But I do want to mention one thing that is, and because you know he was detained right after returning from the U.S. trip, some of his last words were from his reflection of participating in the State Department's program. He said, and I quote. It is an incredible honor to participate in the State Department's IVLP program. I'm excited about gaining profound insight into American culture and media. I mean, I, I don't think these words, this desire of a young entrepreneur should be a reason for the Chinese government to unjustly hold him. And I hope every American would care about his ordeal and join my fight to free him. So just to sum up to your question where he is now, I, we haven't heard a word from him. It's been more than four years. And I, I say this is the defining characteristic of the internment camps or post-Chintranguo prisons. They are such that you don't even have access to your loved ones. Basically, you don't even know if they're alive or not. Thanks for sharing that, Rehan. I mean, certainly... What, what you're going to and what your family's going to is, 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 at least for me personally, something that I cannot imagine. And even though many of our listeners will be familiar with what is happening to the Uyghur people, you know, from, from, from reading articles in the news and, and, and watching things on TV, it, it's a totally different thing to hear this, this very personal description of what's happening there. So, so thank you for that. Staying um, on, the, on the general subject, one of the more troubling aspects of the Uyghur human rights crisis is the use of forced labor, both inside and outside of, of Xinjiang. You, you alluded to this earlier. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about this, this problem? Uh, we know that you have published on this topic, um, and as a matter of fact, a couple of months ago, you co-authored an article titled Five Steps for Keeping Supply Chains Free of Uyghur slavery. Um, Tell us about this problem, please. And also, what can international companies do to stay clear of of this uh, ethical and legal disaster? This is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked this. Um, At the outset, I want to set the tone very firmly here. This is a serious issue. No company can afford the negative implications and reputational damage of being associated with forced labor, nor can they afford to break the law. You know, this issue of forced labor um, came to light as a result of a report titled Uyghurs for Sale by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that identified at least 83 global brands from the technology, clothing, food and beverage to automotive sectors that are suspected and could be linked to Uyghur forced labor through their supply chains. But recently, the Customs Border Protection Agency also sees 13 tons of human hair suspected of forcibly being removed from human hair at the U.S. border. The New York Times last month reported that 
the face mask produced with Uyghur forced labor reached to North American shore. So the overwhelming evidence suggests that the pervasiveness of the Uyghur forced labor and many detainees right now are even being transferred to other parts of China. So this creates very complicated challenges for the ways in which we do business globally. You know, obviously in the U.S. we do have um, this pending legislation before Congress called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Regardless of the fate of these legislation, at the moment we do have federal and state laws that seek to prohibit products made with the use of forced labor from entering U.S. commerce. Give you an example, under the Victims Trafficking and Violence Protection Act, also known as TVPA, um, it is unlawful to provide or obtain the labor or service of person with threats of physical harm by force or by our orchestrating any scheme or cause the person to engage in such labor or service to avoid harm or physical constraint against themselves. And if you look at other countries like the UK or Australia, they also have similar legislation. They call it modern slavery legislation, which mandates transparency in supply chains of commercial engagements. So, you know, when companies whether willingly or unwillingly, end up getting entangled in the use of forced labor. Not only, um, you know, their reputation is at risk, they're also at the risk of breaking the law. And in fact, the law was very clear. The senior executives even could face criminal punishment, not just fine, but actual uh, sentencing can be levied against them. So my suggestion would be, I think, you know, first, it was so interesting when the reports, there were so many reports coming out about the, the use of forced labor. Some of the companies that are implicated were indifferent or they disregarded the complaints or media inquiries about the use of forced labor. That's a very wrong approach. And, and truly, maybe they didn't know about the use of forced labor in their supply chain, but they should immediately remediate and respond to investigations where evidence of forced labor appear in their supply chain. Second, the company should be very vigilant in doing business in China, not just in connection with the Uyghur region. And I, I really want to emphasize that. That's a very critical point because Xinjiang's economy is highly integrated into China's economy. Because Xinjiang is such a, like, you know, um, the oil industry and the mineral resources are so rich. So, you know, it, it became a, an integral part of the Chinese economy. Therefore, products ostensibly originating in a low-risk location, perhaps, you know, I'm just throwing it out there, Guangdong may introduce products tainted by forced labor through their supply chains. And third, um, I could think of, um, you know, because, you know, all the companies, they do have compliance departments. It is very important 
for them to incorporate modern slavery due diligence and supply chain compliance into existing compliance efforts. And where relevant, third-party due diligence training should also include tailored segments that focus on identifying red flags and potential indicators of forced labor, especially recruitment. And they, they have to find ways to monitor view labor practices of suppliers and their network of sub-suppliers. Because oftentimes, like, you know, I'm an anti-corruption lawyer and we do conduct, you know, we advise companies how to conduct um, you know, their own due diligence to make sure they're compliant with different laws. But um, at this point, when we consider the pervasiveness of the use of Uyghur forced labor, the modern slavery due diligence has to be part of the compliance efforts. And, you know, at the last point I could point out is that when the companies try to identify a potential supplier, they have to engage providers with a credible record of verifiable and legitimate business. And also they need to pay attention to sometimes, like even if they do verify, oh, this business is good, because right now, because of so much emphasis on the use of forced labor, the companies can always design uh, or redesign to conceal the ownership structures. So when you do business in China, um, the companies have to make sure like all of these red flags would be at the forefront of their compliance efforts and make sure they even have a Mandarin speaking person in their compliance department because without that language capacity, you won't be identified um, the, the ways how business are done, and especially having somebody who understands how business done in, in China, I think would be incredibly critical. I obviously suggest people to look up uh, my article and um, also make sure that they follow the UN guiding principles on uh, doing business with integrity. So in addition to your advocacy in connection with the Uyghur issues, you are the president of the American Turkic International Lawyers Association. Can you explain to us what Turkic means as opposed to Turkish? I mean, clearly there's a connection between Turkic peoples and a very important one culturally. Um, are there any implications in that for the world of business? Now, I, <laughs> I personally think the English translation uh, really messed it up <laughs> for everybody where I have to explain what is Turkish versus what is Turkic. So the word actually, like, you know, um, is Turk, right? So Uyghurs, Turkish, Kazakh, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Turkmen, Tatar, like this, the, they, they are a, a broad family. They're all like... Um, share similar language and their identity is they're actually Turks. And I think because um, when people look at Turkey, somehow it was translated, oh, these are uh, Turkish from Turkey or from Turkey. And that kind of created this distinction between Turkish and Turkic. So with that analogy, I, I could explain so that I won't confuse uh, your listeners, is that Turkic 
encompasses a broader Turkic identity where it's everybody, like all the Turkic people, including uh, the Turkish people in Turkey, as well as Uzbek, Uyghur, Tatar, Kyrgyz, Kazakh. So once you understand one culture, I, I believe it opens you up to a huge market. You know, Azerbaijan is a big oil and gas hub. And I'm somebody who's a big proponent of understanding and respecting the cultural nuances when you do business in a foreign country. So I think, you know, these are very important region. And, you know, I recall last year in September, I attended a Trans-Caspian business conference in New York. And I was sitting with diplomats and business people from all these Turkic regions. Uh, and we were, you know, joking about uh, the commonalities between each other and just like understanding each other. So in that forum, the U.S. ambassador uh, made a very subtle statement. And from his statement, my understanding was that there's a renewed interest in the region because um, you know, some of the Turkic states sort of became client states to China. And these are regions that we assisted so long ago, and it's important that we renew this interest and we make sure these countries still be our allies. And, you know, because of these, like, debt entrapment policy that China rolls out each time when they engage with these countries... They are literally buying up their conscience and they are also, the Chinese government also changing the ways in which these Turkic countries do business. And they are in many ways similar um, in terms of the, the ways in which they engage in business dealings with the United States. So um, for me, when I saw that subtle statement and the amount of people attended that forum, I do believe it goes to show that um, it's still going to be a huge market and it's very important for American business to seize this opportunity. Now, compared to like, you know, other markets like Kazakhstan, obviously Turkey is much more mature, so is Azerbaijan. And I also noticed this um, very interesting development where in the context of Azerbaijan, they send the the young kids to America to study law, and but often these lawyers are more than happy to come back and make sure, like you know, develop and pursue career opportunities to there. So when that happens, I think they still bring, um, you know, our values, the democracy, the rule of law, back to to their countries. So I believe there's so much opportunities out there for the business to seize and make sure they understand the challenges as well as the cultural nuances in those markets. Rehan, we know that you've spent time in Turkey, and we'd like to hear your thoughts on where that country is going, particularly from the perspective of business people and business attorneys. What are some trends we should be keeping an eye on? 
Whenever I talk about Turkey, I, I love telling this like a very short story that a lot of Americans don't know. And this is a story about a Turkish businessman or media guru, if you will, named Ahmed Artugan. Ahmed was born in Istanbul in 1923 to Turkish parents. Ahmed's father, Munir Artugan, was a career diplomat and his mom was a musician. While his father served as an ambassador of Turkey in the London, he developed and cultivated a love for jazz um, as, a, as a young, young man. And in 1935, his father was appointed as an ambassador to the United States. And this was a period in which DC was, Washington DC was very much segregated. Young Ahmed, while he came from an affluent family, he spent most of his time interacting with black musicians in the Harvard Theater neighborhood of DC. And to support Ahmed's love for jazz and black artists, Munir Atugan, his father, would invite all the musicians to Turkish embassy and everyone would enjoy this beautiful jazz. You know, fast forward, he opens his store and starts his career in the music production business. And then he founded what is known today as the Atlantic Records, which later discovered legendary musicians like Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Ruth Brown, and so many more. And Atugan himself also helped foster ties between the US and Turkey. He served as a chairman of the American Turkish Society. And I love telling this story to point out that the relationship between the two countries go back to a long time ago. And in fact, in 1946, President Harry Truman, um, when um, his father passed away, ordered the battleship um, U.S. Missouri to return his body to Turkey as a demonstration of friendship between the U.S. and Turkey. Now, so Turkey in the past has been viewed as also a darling of the Europeans and also engaged in a very frequent business engagement with the European allies. And I am concerned about the direction Turkey is headed at the moment, but I'm still very much optimistic because Turkey still has some of the key pillars of democracy. For example, the right to vote. And the ideals that Turkey pursued in its foundation and development over the years are right now is under attack. And we may call it a, a temporary setback, but I don't think it would be a long-term situation. So that is kind of, uh, you know, historical analysis and sort of where we are. And right now, the Europe, you know, it used to be, especially during the time when I was there, between 2012 to 2015, you would see a lot of Europe, European business in Turkey, especially the European part of Istanbul. But right now, a, a new form of inbound investment coming into Turkey, and that is coming from the Middle East. And at the same time, over the years, Turkish contractors invested or explored a lot of opportunities in Central Asia, but now they're coming to Africa 
and even America. And Turkish contractors are very much well-known, very skilled, and they've ranked at the top in a lot of um, construction and engineering companies' ranking. And at the same time, Turkish business also reached maturity to compete with American companies, and we hope to see more coming to the United States in, in the future. And in terms of legal structure, Turkey is very much modeled on um, Germanic law and especially Swiss law. And in terms of commercial law, um, in the past few years, Turkey amended its company act and adopted some of the key features of American corporate laws. For example, like the piercing, uh, the corporate will. At the same time, Turkey has tons of bilateral investment treaties with many countries. So even if there's a dispute in the future, uh, an international dispute resolution mechanism can protect investors in an event of unfair expropriation. So despite the geopolitical challenges, what I see is um, oftentimes whenever I'm invited to business events that hosted by the American Turkish Business Council or um, you know, the business community. It's a commitment from both Turkish and American business community to engage in respecting shared values of human freedom and human rights, but also seek, to op- seek opportunities to flourish together. So, I think when we think about the current development of the Middle Eastern business coming into Turkey, what I see a future in which American business can benefit from both Turkish and the Middle Eastern market. And this could be a very um, optimistic view, and I've always been told that I'm, I'm a very optimist person, but uh, I think most importantly, um, Turkish people share the same values that they share and entire Turkic regions share similar values of human freedom and human rights. So um, I, I do believe that people would welcome foreign investment and the country's legal infrastructure also set up in such a way um, to welcome foreign investment. And I think so much of that can be seen in you know, the, the ways in which people do business. It, it's a very welcoming uh, business environment that is facing uh, some challenges. And I guess you know, we can see that even here in America at the moment. Um, so to that end, I, I do say that I think I'm incredibly optimistic that things will return to the period in which where we would see many both inbound and outbound investment between the U.S. and Turkey. I hope that answers your question. Yes, Rayan, thank you. Our time with you has been both uh, inspiring and uh, sobering as well. We appreciate everything you shared with us, and we always like to end our podcast by asking our guests for recommendations, something that our listeners can read or watch or listen to uh, either on on topic or uh, something completely off topic. So uh, what, what would you recommend for us to, to look into? So um, 
I mean, obviously, first and foremost, I, I do hope you know people would pay attention to the Uyghur human rights crisis right now so that we can end this mass atrocities as soon as possible. I don't think we can afford to ignore what's happening to, to the Uyghur people as a whole. Um, and, you know, as a lawyer and entrepreneur, if you will, I'm always fascinated in being more um, intentional lawyer in a sense that I think you know, great lawyers need to understand business too um, because then we can speak the client's language. So in the past few years, I've been reading a lot of books on entrepreneurship and business. And one book um, always uh, stand out for me. It's called The Infinite Game. And, you know, it talks about having that infinite mindset rather than having very short-sighted approach to either to life, to our careers, and, you know, personal relationships too. And right now we're living in these incredibly trying times. And, you know, whether in our careers or in personal relationships, like all of us are experiencing incredibly difficult times. So, you know, I think it's a book um, that gives you a sense of purpose and also forces you to understand, um, you know, some of the challenges, but make sure you have a long-term thinking. And, you know, lawyers, in some ways, were leaders in, in our rights, and so, so are business leaders. And I think I'm a big believer that great business leaders have infinite mindset, um, they great leaders eat last. They will make sure to protect their employees. Um, and especially right now, because, you know, this is a time to show leadership. And, you know, we've been hearing, you know, some employers are trying to, to doing everything they can to protect their employees. They're showing leadership in a sense that they are showing um, an infinite mindset. And I hope like, um, some of the key principles that I identified in this book very much resonate with now and also with many more years in the coming. Um, so I, I, I strongly recommend everybody to read, whether you're a leader, whether you are just somebody who's exploring the law or business, um, and even in your personal relationship, I, I think, you know, when we have that kind of very short-minded um, approach to anything in life, we would be doing the service to explore our potential, but as well as making sure taking care of the other community members. And that's where like, great leaders are born and they continue to develop. So, um, and that was my own takeaway from that book uh, to make sure like at any time I have a, an infant mindset that everything will be fine. But first and foremost, I need to make sure that people within my organization, whether in the American Turkic Bar Association, I want to take care of everybody. Make sure they are, um, you know, uh, they feel like they're validated, they're acknowledged within the organization. And that's what 
great leaders do. And I'm learning about leadership, but I think we all can and we all should. Um, and I think that's how we can create a purpose-driven business. So, so that would be my recommendation. Excellent. Thank you for that. Fred, what do you have for us? I'd like to recommend an article that has been making the rounds. So a lot of our listeners will have probably read it already. But for those who haven't, uh, check out an article called The Unraveling of America, written by Wade Davis. It was published um, on August 6th in Rolling Stone. Um, great article. Uh, I, I think it's it's one of those uh, pieces that we'll, we'll, we'll start a conversation, uh, certainly, um, amongst uh, its readers. And it's one of those articles that has been shared, you know, just, just seeing the kind of coverage and, and, and the level of sharing on social media, it's definitely catching people's attention. It's definitely touching a nerve. Um, very interesting. Primarily focuses on our national response to COVID, but it, it does touch upon other, other related issues. Um, there, there's actually some, some content there about China as well, uh, which I thought was, was spot on. It's, it's, it's only a small part of the article, but but I, I think it, it did hit the right note. So again, The Unraveling of America by Wade Davis. What about you, Jonathan? Not too long ago, I read John Lewis's kind of farewell message to the United States. It was a, a New York Times opinion piece called Together You Can Redeem the Soul of Our Nation. Uh, you know, John Lewis was a politician and civil rights leader. And uh, I was really touched. It wasn't a long article. Uh, but I was touched by how candid he spoke to us. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always intrigued by people who reach the end of their lives. And if you're fortunate enough to have time to reflect, uh, you know, to provide uh, advice to your, to your family, to your friends, uh, or if you're a, you know, a prominent figure, then, then to everyone who's listening. Uh, you know, and I think about this probably more than most about what I would say, you know, what kind of legacy am I leaving behind? And uh, certainly, in the, apropos what we've been talking about today, you know, with uh, interracial relations uh, throughout the world, it really makes me think hard about how I'm interacting with people around me and, uh, and whether I'm doing enough to kind of heal our, our breaches in our society. And so a very, very sobering uh, article, a very sobering thing to think about. And I'm, I'm a natural uh, reconciler, right? I mean, if I have beef with somebody or they have beef with me, my, my first goal is to try and reconcile as quickly as possible. Um, because I can't, it kind of grates on my soul, right? If I have that hanging out there. So, um, certainly recommend that to anybody who want that kind of insight, uh, and parting words from John Lewis. Well, Rehan, I want to thank you again, Fred and I have certainly enjoyed having you with us on, on the podcast. We would love to have you back again to keep talking about various issues. Uh, you have a wide array of expertise and we hope that uh, you enjoyed being with us because we certainly enjoyed having you with us. Oh, thank you so much. You guys have been delight. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business and tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.